Well, I'll never be able to sing that song ever again without uh, thinking about the book of Philippians, because that really has uh, turned into our theme song uh, for uh, our study in this great letter, which sadly ends today. And uh, this is always a, a happy, sad moment for me when I have a chance to finish up a, another uh, book of the Bible. And uh, I'm not sure I'll ever get through all of them uh, before the Lord comes or takes me home, but uh, it's such a privilege, such an honor um, to uh, make a living, if you will, studying and teaching the Word of God. Uh, no one is worthy of such an honor, and uh, it's such a, a blessing to be able to um, serve you as a church uh, by opening up God's Word and, and uh, hopefully just giving you a, a greater understanding of what a passage means and how it applies to uh, your life so that uh, you're better equipped to go home and, and to live the Christian life um, and to be all that uh, God desires us to be uh, as, his, as His people. And so we, we come to the end of, of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. And uh, we just have three verses remaining, and uh, let me just read these for you, and um, I'll pray and we'll talk about them. Philippians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul concludes, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to have the word of God opened in front of us and to be taught ultimately by your spirit who illuminates all of us who have him abiding with us, uh, helping us to understand the word that he inspired Paul to write and others to write. And so, we just ask that you would uh, even now uh, show your grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ um, in learning uh, what you want us to learn this morning so we can live the way you want us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a few days ago, I witnessed a great example of what we've been learning from the book of Philippians. This past Friday morning, I and another one of our elders had the privilege of praying for our Honduras short-term missions team uh, before they departed for the airport. And so the 23 or so folks uh, from our church were joined uh, uh, together with uh, 20 or so folks from another church from uh, Georgetown, Texas, along with a handful of others uh, from our church who had come to see their family and friends off. And after everything was, was packed up and they were ready to leave, I I greeted everyone and, and commended them for loving Jesus and, and wanting to, to take his name uh, to those who had never heard it and to go on a mission trip and to serve him with their life. And then we joined hands together and, and prayed. And the reason why we prayed is, is was we needed to humbly acknowledge our dependence on God's grace to, to enable us to fulfill the Great Commission and to bring the good news about Jesus to those who, who have yet to hear. And so as we were all standing there together, uh, it dawned on me that it looked a lot like the picture that we've been staring at for the last, uh, I guess, year or so. Um, that's kind of what it looked like uh, this Friday morning under our little portico. Um, here was a group of people who were together for the gospel, joyfully partnering in the cause of Christ. And um, if you remember when we began this, this beloved epistle, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, I sought to show you that the main theme is not joy. Like it's commonly believed, like I believe for many years that, that this was the epistle of joy, and, and which makes sense because um, the word joy and rejoice are mentioned some 16 times uh, in this letter, and it's very encouraging. It's a very upbeat. It does exude joy from the very beginning to, uh, to the very end, and so it's not surprising that 
Philippians is often referred to as the epistle, the epistle of joy. But uh, a careful reading of this letter reveals a more subtle uh, underlying theme that I think is much deeper and richer and serves as the well from which the joy that Paul talks so much about flows. And I pointed out to you, if you remember, uh, the other most often repeated words besides joy and rejoice, they're the words fellowship and partnership. The word or, or the phrase the gospel used nine times. And then the, the one word or phrase that's used more than any other uh, word or phrase in the letter is the word Christ or Jesus or Lord or Lord Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus or Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ or Savior 51 times. Almost half of the 104 verses uh, here uh, in, in the book of Philippians. And as Kent Hughes uh, so uh, accurately stated, he said, Philippians is about Christ. Philippians is about people in Christ Jesus. Philippians is about people who are in the fellowship of the gospel because they are in Christ. And I won't take the time to go back through those uh, theme verses or key verses um, in in all four of these chapters, but uh, again, just to remind you that Paul obviously was a joyful guy. And he wanted his readers to share his joy. But, but the question is, why was Paul rejoicing? And why did he want them and us to rejoice with him? Well, I think it's clear. Paul's joy was based on their participation or their partnership in the work of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this particular church's mutual commitment to the cause of Christ is what what brought Paul such great joy. And, and, and this letter is essentially a thank you note that he wrote to express his appreciation, his, his affection for the Philippian believers for faithfully supporting him um, through their multiple financial gifts and, and by sending them Epaphrodites, who was one of their own, to minister to his needs while he was under house arrest in, in Rome. And, and despite Paul's circumstances at the time, being imprisoned, he rejoiced that Christ was still being proclaimed and that the gospel was still advancing due in large part to the sacrificial contribution of the church in Philippi. And so he longed for them, and, and not just them, but believers everywhere and in every generation, including us, to rejoice with him and to share his struggle in the cause of Christ. And so that's where we came up with this title for the book of Philippians, Together for the Gospel, Joyfully Partnering in the Cause of Christ. And I, I was just so grateful for Friday morning because it was really kind of the, 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 the cherry on top of the Sunday as I was thinking through preaching this final message, and I, God gave me a picture, a, a, a literal picture of, of what we've been learning. Now, these three remaining verses here would be I think very easy to breeze over and uh, not think much about because at first glance they, they appear to be just some incidental remarks that, that, that Paul was making, very similar to how he typically closed his letters. But we need to remember this morning that Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who never wasted a single word in composing the scriptures, and in this case, the Spirit directed Paul to, to carefully choose words that, that were purposefully designed to reiterate the primary theme of this letter. And so it would leave a lasting impression on them and also on us. And so as Paul concluded his letter, he may have envisioned all the members of the church in Philippi gathered together listening to the letter as it was read. And he wanted to make sure that they never forgot that they were members of a special community who were on a great quest together. Nothing less than the evangelization of the world. And so he intended to seal the unity once and for all of those who were, were part of the, the fellowship of the gospel by, by reemphasizing this, this, this strong bond that we should feel with one another. 
and that God intended for us to experience as we labor together for the cause of Christ. And the way he did this was by personally greeting the saints in Philippi and by bringing greetings from the brethren who were with him. And so what he was doing, he was passing greetings back and forth between individuals and and churches at different locations, which served to link them together in this worldwide partnership of the gospel. And so in these last three verses, Paul was emphasizing the oneness of God's people, that we're all part of the same team, that we're all working towards the same goal of bringing the gospel to others who have yet to hear it. And he even subtly slipped in one last illustration of the progress of the gospel as a result of their collective efforts. And he closed by reminding them of their desperate need of God's grace to live out all that he had said in this letter. And in many ways, this benediction here at the end mirrors the salutation at the beginning. Look back at Philippians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so really, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 and verses 21 to 23 of chapter 4 serve as bookends of this letter. And in these, these closing comments... Uh, Paul, again, just re-emphasized the three elements of partnering together for the cause of Christ. We're going to see in this text the regards to partners in the gospel, the, the reason for partners in the gospel, why are we partnering together for the gospel, and, and then finally, and most importantly, the resource of partners in the gospel. And so let's look at these three elements uh, of partnering together for the cause of Christ. First of all, the regards to partners in the gospel. Verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Now, this is unique to Paul uh, in a closing greeting because unlike his other letters, uh, he mentioned no one by name. If you're familiar with his other letters, oftentimes he would name certain people and, and, and call them out and, and be very specific. But here, he, he just included everyone with a generic term, every saint. And it may have been that he didn't want to single anyone out. He, why? Because he was emphasizing the togetherness. It's not about one person. It's not about me. It's not about the elders. It's not about you know, th- this guy or that person and what they do. No, it's all about all of us. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, which included each and every believer in the Philippian church, from the youngest to the oldest, from the the least mature to the most mature, from the the members to the leaders, even as he said in chapter 1, verse 2, that he was writing to uh, both the overseers and the deacons there. He called out the the leadership team, if you will, uh, the elders and deacons. But notice he describes them again, as he did in that opening verse, he calls them saints, saints, which, by the way, refers to you. You may not consider yourself a a saint, right? We we use this term uh, loosely in our vernacular, right? Oh, he's such a saint or she's such a saint, Essentially, we're saying, well, they're, they're just a, gr- a good person, right? Um, we, we know of sainthood. Uh, people are, are deemed saints by the Pope or the, uh, some church council because they, uh, they were super spiritual people or they did some great work for the Lord, and so uh, they qualified to, for sainthood. And so the church uh, basically uh, qualifies them as a saint or, or, or appoints them as a saint. But, but this term saint, according to the way Paul used it in his letters, and, and particularly here in Philippians, it simply describes a Christian's spiritual standing 
as those who, based on their faith in Christ, have received his imputed righteousness, his holiness. The word saint simply means holy one. In other words, it's someone who's been set apart from their sin to serve the Lord. And if you're a Christian, that defines you. You have been set apart from sin to serve Christ. And so you are a saint. Uh, This title should not be uh, reserved for just a few select dead people, uh, again, whose lives have been examined by uh, the church and, and deemed worthy of sainthood. According to the scriptures, the term saint is not a term that only applies to this elite group of super spiritual people. Every Christian qualifies for sainthood. Now, that would be heresy in, in some churches today. But the saints that Paul's referring to here were not dead. They were alive and well and serving in the church in Philippi. In other words, sainthood is not something we achieve or you know, over time, nor, nor is it based on the approval of others. It's something that Christ achieved for us and it's based on his approval alone. It's not something we become. It's something we are. We are all saints in God's eyes, and therefore we need to live like them. And when we realize the, the, the privilege of having been chosen and, and set apart as God's holy possession, it, it's a, it reminds us of our duty to live holy and blameless lives. To, to be like Paul said in chapter 2, verse 14, to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And so the longer that we live as Christians, the longer we are Christians, the more holy we should be and the more bright our lives should shine in this dark and sinful world. And so he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And then he says, the brethren who are with me greet you. Certainly Paul was referring to Timothy. He mentioned him at the very beginning, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. We know he was also referring to Epaphroditus, who um, he mentioned in chapter 2, this faithful uh, worker and soldier who, who labored to the point of death even. He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So we, we know that Timothy and Epaphroditus were there. It's also possible that, that Paul had in mind other co-laborers like Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristarchus and John Mark and Justice and Luke, his faithful physician, Epaphras and even Demas. Uh, all of which he mentioned in his other letters that were written at the same time. You can look at Colossians chapter 4. You can look at Philemon, uh, uh, verse 23 and 24. And these are the other uh, co-laborers or brothers in Christ that were with him uh, while he was under house arrest in Rome. And so he greets every saint in Christ Jesus, those who were in the church in Philippi. He refers to those who were with him, the brothers who were with him, And then he said, all the saints greet you. You say, who are these people? Well, I think they're most likely members of the church in Rome, some of whom Paul mentioned by name in the last chapter of the book of Romans. You can look at Romans 16, verses 1 through 15, and he he just, it's like a grocery list of name after name after name after name after name after name after name of, of people, the saints. Uh, the believers in the church in Rome that Paul had the privilege of fellowshipping with and, and spending time with while he was there under house arrest. And again, what was the point of the, this simple greeting, these simple regards that he was giving uh, to, to the partners in the gospel? Again, he's, he's, he's intermingling his greetings with the greetings of his fellow servants along with the greetings of their brothers and sisters in the Roman church. He was desiring to communicate and cement the unity of the church for all time. We're all part of the same team. We're all in this together. And we have... A goal. There's a reason why God has brought us all together. 
And that's the second part, the second element of partnering together for the cause of Christ, the reason for partners in the gospel. And it's just taken from this simple phrase. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. By the way, who was the Caesar at the time? Nero, who was notorious for his hatred of Christians. He was um, known to impale Christians on stakes and put them in his garden and douse them with pitch and light them in fire to use to kind of make uh, turn them into human tiki torches to light up his garden parties. This, this is the guy. This is the Caesar that, that Paul is referring to here. This is the Caesar that Paul was waiting to hear uh, what he was going to decide, whether he was going to release him or he was going to execute him. And Paul was there for two years or so waiting for Nero to make a decision to rule on what to do with the Apostle Paul. And yet during those two years of that Paul spent there in Rome awaiting a trial, awaiting for the results, the gospel flourished right under the nose of this God-hating, Christian-killing, pagan ruler, emperor. Now, we can't know for sure who Paul was specifically referring to in this phrase, those of Caesar's household. But it included everyone who either lived with Nero or worked for Nero, who had come to faith in Christ as a result of Paul's gospel witness while he was there under house arrest in Rome. They could have been Nero's immediate family members or members of his personal staff or other government officials or most likely there were soldiers who had been assigned to to guard Paul. This was uh, Nero's own... uh, temple guard, if you will, his own secret service. And these were the soldiers that were assigned to to guard Paul, and they all spent time being chained, literally chained to him during his imprisonment. You can imagine, I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall just to to listen to uh, Paul talk to one soldier after another, after another, after another. I mean, he, he literally had a captive audience. It's not that he couldn't go anywhere, they couldn't go anywhere. And so I'm sure he took advantage of, that, of those opportunities on a daily basis to boldly share Christ with these, these pagan soldiers. It could also be a cupbearer or a cook or a musician or a treasurer or an accountant or a stable boy. We don't know who actually was included in this exp- expression, especially those of Caesar's household. But as one commentator said so well, he said, the gospel knows no boundaries. It can penetrate the most forbidding walls. It can plant itself in the very midst of those who are seeking to exterminate it. Truly, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. It might feel like you've got a rough go in your own family when it comes to the gospel. Maybe you, you work in a very rough environment where there's a lot of antagonism towards the gospel. Maybe you go to school uh, in a place where, you know, uh, the students obviously could care less about the things of God, and, and yet this should encourage us that if, that if people came to know Christ in Caesar's household, those that surrounded Nero... Surely, people could come to Christ in your family. Surely, some of your family members could come to Christ. Surely, some of your coworkers and classmates could come to Christ. Because the gospel has power to penetrate the most forbidding walls. It's no wonder that, that Paul had mentioned earlier in this letter that what happened to him had served to advance the gospel. Go back to chapter 1, verse 12. You'll remember this. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, 
This is chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So Paul was saying that his imprisonment had provided him greater contact with unbelievers. And it also provided greater courage to the believers in Rome. Who thought, man, if Paul can, if Paul can endure this and look at how joyful he is and look at how bold he is, man, we can be as joyful and as bold and courageous with the gospel as he is. And so what, what Satan and all those who served him, including Nero, meant for evil, God meant for what? For good. And God used his imprisonment to, to grant Paul access to the inner circle of Rome. How cool is that? He, he got on the inside. He couldn't have just walked up and, and knocked on Nero's, the door of Nero's palace and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Hey, can I have a meeting with all of your, 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 your soldiers, your praetorian guard? I'd like to share the gospel with them. That, that wasn't going to happen. And so God used persecution and he used his getting arrested to get him, in on, get him in, inside. And Nero had no, no idea that, that God was, was, was doing an inside job on him. <laughs> when it came to his own family members, his own uh, members of his own council and, 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 and uh, members of his own staff were coming to Christ. As I was thinking about that this, this week, I was reminded of what recently happened in, in, in Goa. We talked about it last week at the pastoral training seminary, how some uh, community members attacked, a mob attacked and some of the, the students and families that were living there and, and how uh, they just trashed the whole place and to the point where they have to, they have to leave. They, they can't stay uh, in that home any longer and, and they have to find a new location for their, for their seminary. And, and, uh, and, and you think, man, what a, what, a, what a tragedy. But based on the example of, of Paul in, in, in the book of Philippians, we can say, you know what? God's up to something good there. And, and while Satan and, and his followers are doing everything to squash the progress of the gospel in India, right, God means it for good. And little did they realize, they're, they're just pouring gas on the gospel. And it's going to flourish even more. And we need to pray towards that end. We know that suffering and, and persecution is, is one of the primary means that God has always used to advance the gospel and to build his church. Just look at the book of Acts. Paul, or excuse me, Christ had told the disciples, hey, remain in Jerusalem and, and you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And that happened. That, that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and, and, and filled the disciples and they preached the gospel and, and uh, the gospel began to go forth uh, from Jerusalem as those people who had come for the Passover went back to their, their hometowns uh, all across Asia um, and even all the way to Rome. But the disciples hung out in Jerusalem and they were just sharing the gospel in Jerusalem and then until the Apostle Paul, well, it was Saul at the time, until Saul began to uh, arrest them and, and, and kill them. And it was through that persecution, particularly the stoning of Stephen, that it actually says there's a transition there, a clear transition in the book of Acts, where it says that, that because of the persecution in Jerusalem, the disciples scattered for fear of their lives. And so on a human level, that looked like a bad thing, but from God's perspective, that's exactly what he wanted to happen. Because now they went to where? Judea and Samaria. And they brought the gospel there. And then persecution followed them there. And that pushed them even further to Antioch, to the church in Antioch and beyond into Asia Minor. 
And so we need to remember that God uses suffering, he uses persecution as one of the the main means to advance the gospel, to get the word out, to extend the church. And so there's different different kinds of suffering. In other words, God allows and even ordains suffering in our lives for various purposes. Some suffering is, is simply the consequences of our sin. Right? We, we've said this before, that if you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And, and we, we forget that. When we're standing there faced with a temptation, that thought usually is not going through my mind. I'm choosing not to, to, to sin. I'm, I'm choosing to suffer. Because if I do this, there's going to be consequences. And so some suffering is simply the consequences of our sin. Some suffering is corrective suffering. It's intended to get us back on track. When we stray away, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the discipline of the Lord, that he spanks us as his children. Uh, Why? So that we'll learn to obey and honor him and ultimately be holy as he is holy. So some suffering is corrective. There's other suffering that's instructive. We're not experiencing any discipline. It's just instructive. It's just intended to mold us and refine us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Peter talks about this in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so some suffering is corrective, some is instructive. God chooses to bring the suffering in our life to teach us things that we wouldn't learn any other way. We're not being punished or disciplined for anything. We're simply, he's wanting to take us to the next level in our conformity to Christ. So what was this that Paul was suffering? Was it corrective suffering? What Was it instructive suffering? Or was it redemptive suffering? There's a third kind of suffering that we could call redemptive suffering, and it's that suffering that God ordains so the gospel might spread to others. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but there may be times that God ordains suffering for your life so that others can come to know Christ through your witness. I remember one of our own members when Jerry, Jerry Ron Keel, got stepped on by one of his cows out on the ranch and collapsed one of his lungs, and he's laying in the emergency room, and I walk in, and he says, I don't know why this happened, but there's some doctors and nurses that are going to hear about Jesus. And so immediately he wasn't thinking, okay, I must have done something bad. God's punishing me. This is God's discipline. Or, or obviously there's always instruction in all sorts of suffering, right? All of our suffering, we can learn things. But he, he immediately went to, this is redemptive suffering. And, and apparently there's some doctors and nurses that need to hear about Jesus. And so he had, me, he had a, one of my cows step on me so I can be here to tell, tell him the gospel. I never, I'll never forget a story that John MacArthur shared about this type of suffering uh, in his life. He had had a, a knee, he had knee surgery at one point years ago, and um, everything went great. And then a, a few uh, days later, he had this excruciating pain to the point where he doubled over and collapsed on the floor, and he's laying there in agony, and his wife comes over and says, get up, stop being a wimp, you know? Well, come to find out, he, had, he had, had air bubbles in his veins that were traveling up towards his heart and his brain, and you know what happens if, if they, an air bubble reaches those, those vital locations. You, you die, and so he was rushed to the hospital, and, and the, the doctor that he uh, cared, for, cared for him uh, was, was a very gracious man, and, and uh, he, he essentially saved his life. And, uh, and so he asked... John, what do you do? He says, I'm a pastor. And uh, in fact, he said, uh, when I get better, I'd love to have you come and visit 
my church. And so the doctor said he would, and of course, lots of times people say they're going to come to church, right? How many times you had your friends or neighbors, family, I'll be, I'll see you Sunday, and they never show, right? Well, in the providence of God, the day that that doctor showed up at Grace Community Church, John MacArthur was beginning his exposition of the Gospel of Luke. And if you know anything about the very first verse or first four verses of, of, of the Gospel of Luke, it's all about Luke the doctor. And so he was able to expound who this, this great doctor was from the Scriptures, Paul's personal physician. And, and it was through that sermon on Luke the doctor that this doctor who had cared for John MacArthur got saved. And it's an amazing story how, how he came close to death so this doctor had come to Christ. Now, I don't know how many of you have a similar story that you know of someone that has come to faith in Christ because of something you suffered. If you do, James Montgomery Boyce says this, you must know that God has greatly honored you with this suffering. And you must take joy even in the midst of it as you see how your suffering brought salvation to others. This is a joy won through veils of tears, but it is one of the choicest prizes of the Christian life. Paul mentioned this perspective on suffering as being a prized possession, a gift from the Lord, if you will. In Philippians chapter 1, you'll remember, he says, for to you, verse 29, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And he likens suffering to a gift that we've been given. And it's, it's right up there with our salvation. Not only have you been gifted with the faith to believe, you've been gifted with suffering. You, you get to believe in Christ. Not only get you believe in Christ, but you get to suffer for Christ. And I know we're all thankful that we get to believe in Christ, right? We're not always so thankful that we get to suffer for Christ. But that was Paul's perspective. Again, this, this short little phrase, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul, I think Paul just, just wanted to sneak in one last example of how the gospel powerfully changes the lives of others when we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, people get saved. And, and they get saved out of the most uh, unexpected places and in the most unexpected ways. And so that's the reason. That's the reason why we're together is for the for, 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 for souls to be saved. And then finally, and I, I think this is most important, and that is the resource, the resource of, of partners in the gospel. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, you may be aware of this, but, but Paul ended all 13 of his New Testament letters with a one-sentence benediction exactly like this one or one similar to it. In fact, it's interesting. I would encourage you to do it. Just, just look, start, start in Romans. Don't do it right now uh, or you'll miss the rest of the sermon, right? But, but start in Romans and go all the way to Philemon. And every one of those letters, all 13 letters from Romans to Philemon, every one of them ends with this same line or something very similar to it. It's fascinating. Why? Why was this the, the last thing that, that was on Paul's mind whenever he kind of signed, if you will, all of his letters? This was kind of his signature statement. Why? Well, I think it's very simple. God's grace permeated Paul's heart and mind. And that's why he emphasized and, and magnified God's grace in all of his letters. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. The only way I can be who I am is because of the grace of God, taking no credit 
whatsoever. He says, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. It's not that I didn't work hard. Not that I didn't put in effort, but not I, but the grace of God with me. So he acknowledged the fact that he had worked hard, that he had sacrificed much to be and do all that he was and all that he did. But ultimately, he was who he was because of the grace of God. And it wasn't it. It wasn't anything in him. It was ultimately the grace of God with me. And so Paul knew that his life was, was completely dependent on the grace of God. And he wanted to make sure everyone else knew that their lives were totally dependent on the grace of God. Now, I don't need to tell you that you would be sitting here as a Christian today apart from the grace of God. You know that. You know that you're saved by God's grace. But sometimes we forget that we're sanctified by God's grace. In other words, God didn't save us by his grace and, this, and then just leave us to ourselves. To live the Christian life in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom. God's grace is the key to living the Christian life. And I think this is the grace that Paul was referring to here, and and not just here, but at the end of every one of the letters that that are recorded here in the scriptures. This is not saving grace that that, that frees us from sin. This This is God's sustaining and sanctifying grace that enables and empowers us to live in obedience to Christ. And so we need to regularly rely on the grace that God provides us in and through who? Whose grace is it? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the person and work of Christ. You may have heard this before, a a little acrostic to remember what grace means. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Another way to define grace is is, is God's unearned and undeserved kindness and favor that he pours out on our lives based on the personal work of Jesus Christ. I think it's appropriate that after mentioning Jesus Christ or Christ or Jesus or Lord Jesus, over 50 times in this letter that Paul would include him in this last verse. Here's here's number 51. Mention of Christ, number 51. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, Paul was reminding his readers that Jesus Christ And his enabling grace is the Christian's number one resource. He had just gotten done in verse 13 saying, I can do what? All things through my own strength and wisdom. No, I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. And so it is only when when Christ's grace is at work in our lives, that we're able to be and do all the things that Paul has yearned for and exhorted us to be and do in this letter. In order to to live out everything that we've learned from this this book, this book of Philippians, we must know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's where it starts. None of us can do any of this unless we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Because if you don't, you may have sat through this entire series and all you've gotten is a bunch of information that, that will be impossible for you to put into practice. Because you can't, you, you can't, I can't put this into practice. Christ in us can put this in practice. Amen? And if we do know him, You're like, oh, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm good. It'll just be a matter of time before 
all this stuff kind of gets put in practice in my life? No, not necessarily. We need to abide in Christ. If you're not abiding in Christ, you, you won't be able to put this into practice either. You may be saved, you may be a Christian, but if you're not abiding in Christ, you're not staying closely connected to him so that you're amply supplied with a steady flow of his grace, none of this is, none of this is possible. Jesus himself said in John 15, 4, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to live with the confidence that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ. Apart from the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll not be able to say with the same hope as Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We won't be able to say that. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ and stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We, we won't be able to do it. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll not be able to consider suffering as a gift granted to us by God for Christ's sake. Not going to be our perspective when we suffer. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit or to humbly regard others as more important than ourselves and not merely look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Won't be able to do that. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to have the, the selfless attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the very form of God, humbled himself and came to earth and became a man. And even to the point of being crucified on a cross. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with the knowledge that it is ultimately God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to do all things without grumbling or disputing and prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ and to suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that we can gain Christ. That's not going to be your experience apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformed to his death. Not going to be like Jesus apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not going to happen. We're going to struggle with regret and past memories and unresolved issues in our past and Live looking in our rearview mirror instead of pressing on to it. Can't do it apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll not be able to eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Apart from, apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't, you won't be looking for his return. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to live in harmony with one another and be used by God to help others get along within the body of Christ. We'll be just like Yodi and Sindiki, having a cat fight in the church. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll not be able to rejoice in the Lord always and again. Paul says, right, rejoice. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll not be able to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. 
apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, will not be able to experience the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Apart from the grace of the Lord, we'll, we'll just live stressed out, frazzled lives. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus, we will not be able to dwell on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, excellent, or worthy of praise. Listen, apart from the grace of Christ, your mind's going to be all over the place, thinking on all sorts of things you, you have no business thinking about, which will sadly and inevitably lead to actions that will come out in your life. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll not be able to be content in whatever circumstances we are in and know how to get along with humble means and also how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance and learn the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering loss. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll never learn that secret. We'll never learn the secret of contentment. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be able to do all things through him who strengthens us. And apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll not be able to see God supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. May God grant us his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ to put into practice all these life-changing truths that we've learned and received and heard and seen in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to have been able to study this great letter together and to learn about this fellowship of the gospel that you have called all of us to be a part of. And Lord, we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is only truly understood when it's received as a trust, as a stewardship that needs to be passed on to other people. Lord, I pray that, that this church would never be a cul-de-sac for the gospel, that the gospel would just come in here and stop but Lord, it would just go out of this place that we would, that we would see that this is just a freeway for the gospel, that we, we, we gather together to, to grow so that we can go out and, and share the gospel with others and that we find great joy in partnering together for the cause of Christ. And we know, Lord, ultimately that this is impossible apart from the grace that you provide us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray we wouldn't leave here trying harder, committed to do more, but to simply be more dependent on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.